Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere And each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, this is Maria. Um, we're just gonna I'm just gonna mute out and wait until Patrick gets here. Are you here, Patrick? No. All right, he should be here anytime. Uh, we'll just mute out and wait. And um, is the recording started? All right, you'll hear it when the recording starts. I see you up there, National Assembly Trainer. That shows that. <laughs> yeah, it says National Assembly Trainer, and it's got a purple um, logo. Uh, interesting, angel lo- an angel or angel of light, or I don't know what it is, but yeah, it's there. Oh, but anyway, we'll um, we'll mute out and just let you listen tonight, and I'll just give a brief intro and stuff. So. He should be here in a minute, and he and Mike. Okay, we'll talk to you in a while.
Hello? 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 Hi, is that you, Patrick? Yeah, this, this is me. How are you? Really good. How are you doing? I'm doing all right. Surviving ready? the winter. <laughs> What's that? What's that? I said surviving the winter. Is it cold there? Yeah. It's, it's honestly worn back up the last couple of days. It's not been too bad, but short days and lots of clouds. Not much light. Yeah. Yep. Yep. I'm sure you're familiar in Alaska with that. <laughs> yeah. Yep. We are. Um, I'm going to, I'm going to get, I, I try to always get the number of um, hours and minutes of daylight we had and how much we lost since yesterday. Yep. And uh, so I try to announce that and the temperature at the beginning of my shows so that we get some context for it when we go forward and listen to these old shows. So <clears throat> we had um, right now where we're at, we lost a minute of daylight since yesterday, and we're at three hours, 45 minutes of daylight today. Wow. Yeah, it's that's a short a, day. That's a short day. Yeah. <laughs> yep, it is definitely uh, time to sit by the stove, chew the fat, and re remunerate. Yes. Yep. <laughs> so, yeah, it's, it's kind of well, I just wanted to mention, I know you, you kind of want me to go to the trail. I just, I guess I'm not sure of what exactly um, you want me to be going over. I guess I was just kind of wondering if, this, if the citizenship diagram was something you've studied, if you had questions pertaining to it, like in particular, or if there's particular areas that you may want to touch on. Because otherwise, I don't really know what you want to address or what I should be even talking about. Okay, yes, definitely the citizenship diagrams. Um, and it, it, and I, I always have lots of questions, but I just I want to give you a chance in these first couple of shows to get your whole viewpoint out without being interrupted or argued against, so that as we go through and build one show on the next, people have it clear in mind what your what your theory is basically. Okay. You know what the theory is. So. Well, so, okay. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the theory to me is it, is pretty simple. Um, but it has to, because it's just built on the, the big. The biggest thing to me was getting the foundations, right? Okay. What the United States is, what citizenship is in national, in, in public international law, and what citizenship is in private international law. Like, and that's to that's where I see the dual citizenship come in. But I don't, I don't know how okay. far you want that's, to go, kind of. Yeah. Well, what I want to do is I have a definite perspective, and I've noticed from the citizenship. And we haven't started recording, but um, we okay. will. Oh, it says we have. It's okay. Idea. It shouldn't be automatic. Well, Maybe it's I a, yeah, it was, being, it was saying it was being recorded when I called in, when I entered the room or whatever. Okay. All right. Well, that's, that's good, too. That's no problem. Yeah. Um, so what, what I noticed from your outline is that you had a particular direction you wanted to go. I definitely want to do um, the first 10 pages of the citizenship diagrams, and Bill is going to um, try to screen share those diagrams so that as it records okay. our voice, it will also show those diagrams. Okay. So if you want to do that today, but if you have a premise that you want to start from, that's perfectly fine too. 
Well, a lot of it fits in. That's what the citizenship diagram to me really helped open my thought process up a little bit more because I don't completely agree with how they use the 14th Amendment in here as a naturalization clause. Because um, again, that applied only to like slaves brought here that were born here that couldn't naturalize. And so it didn't really have anything to do with natural or native born state citizens. Um, uh -huh. more, other than that, a lot of it is very fitting because it really helps people understand, you know, unorganized territories, you know, the capacity of District of Columbia in relation to the states. Um, that, that stuff, I think, is really great and really spot on. Um, right. Wanting to understand where, where does the Constitution apply and where, when doesn't it? You know, like where, where is that boundary? Yep, and, and um, if we can go through the first 10 pages, if, if you don't mind doing them page by page, because what's going to happen is after we record this, I'm going to probably create um, a video, and then we'll share it with people via email, and we'll have the citizenship diagram document attached to the email so people can actually grab that and go through it. Um, piece by piece so that they start to understand. Um, and so I just think it's basically, it's just a really basic building block kind of a show tonight on that citizenship okay. diagram. Yeah, um, and that's to me, and so what it's based on for the citizenship diagram, because um, that doesn't get into much of the private international and public international law and, and that separation, which I think helps add a lot more, adds another layer um, that I don't yeah. I don't know when the best time is to introduce that, but it's definitely necessary um, from my point of view. For um, me, that's really confusing. I'll just tell you, for yeah. me, I've studied this. It creates confusion, and I think that that needs to be a separate program. If you, okay. I I need to really get it that one firmly in in my uh, understanding. I I you know I know the difference. Yep. If I think about it, but it's not natural. It doesn't come quickly, so we need to do a whole separate show. Now, if you happen to get further than the ten, first 10 pages of the citizenship diagram, that's totally fine, too. Okay. Well, then that's what I'm saying. I mean, do you, I mean you're looking to just kind of go, go through this and read it, I mean, almost line for line, or what? No. No. Just if, if you want to um, just... Yeah, I thought about actually making the introduction tonight, just reading that first page, but that's really not necessary since the last, the first call on status correction, we talked about all the different types of terminology we're going to be reviewing. And so mm -hmm. if, if this program can just be starting with page two of the citizenship diagrams and just, just look at the page, we'll put it up on the screen and then just explain what you understand about each page. If, if that works. Okay. Just look at it. Tell us what that top picture is. And I, I, I'll have questions. I've been studying the first 10 pages these last couple days, and I definitely have questions. Yeah, I mean, the first time I, I, I probably went through this document, when I first got it, same thing, I probably went through it four or five times. And even then, I was mm -hmm. still like, okay, what does this mean? <laughs> you know? Like, it, it takes a while for it to sink in. Um, you know, just the fact that it's this confusing is, yeah. tells me something. Um, I was just reading Brent Winter's book, top of page 29. It says, all, all such notions have arisen from confusion of Babylon, the mother, and the cradle of civil law and government, still called civilization. So to me, confusion is the stock and trade of the civil government. 
or okay. civilization or society. Civilization. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and so in, that's to me where you have to take in the common law and, and the law merchant. The law merchant is the part of that because to, to me that's the private contract law. Mm-hmm. And, and that's the part that regulates, yeah, civilization. It's, and I think what really kicked it into overdrive was the, was the change in the banking in the, in the 30s because that's when they started to use um, securities a lot with the Securities and Exchange Act of 34. So once the, once the money, see the, the law system is a relation to the money and without having redeemable currency available for the people, you technically couldn't execute a contract, right? You couldn't actually make uh, asset-based payment. You're using all these bonds and they're under it, or these securities that are underwritten by bonds. So mm-hmm. I think, and that's where the law merchant comes into it. And that's the purpose of the quote that I put in my document from Edward Mandel House, um, mm-hmm. talking about having a security interest um, in the people, and that's under the law merchant. And yeah, and that definitely. So yeah, that's yeah, that's a tricky part of it. Yeah, and and absolutely, the 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 Administrative Procedures Act in the 1930s, everything that happened throughout uh, the FDR administration is very key in regards to whatever we're talking about with status correction. So mm-hmm. what we're basically going to do when we go through this citizenship document is. the citizenship diagram is just right now at this point let's think about what if you're an uninitiated person and you just believe that everybody in the country has the same status they're all like you they're all citizens of of, um, citizens of let's just call it Washington and citizens of their state and so what we want to do is just take that uninitiated person take them through the this is basically the surface, and eventually we will get into maybe the next next time we talk we'll get into you know we'll just we'll just keep digging deeper down yep okay so yeah so let's let's cover some of this surface stuff first try to get through as best we can because yeah a lot I mean lots of stuff was just read and I, it was hard because um Again, without having the interaction or without having the questions, I just don't know kind of how to, I guess, work through the material. I mean, lots of it, I don't know if I have the context to give any more deeper explanation than what the diagram is showing, I guess is what I'm saying. Well, that's okay. That's okay. It's, okay. It's, um, what, what you're doing is you're looking at the top of page two at the, what, yep. what most, most just, just give your impressions, and I think that's going to be, uh, it just, it, it'll just act as a guide to to what these the most important aspects of what this document is showing. I mean, obviously, how people can study it themselves and figure it out. Yep. Yeah. But what we're and, doing, and we're talking. That, go ahead. I was just going to. We're we're talking to the auditory learner because if you're if you can just decipher these yourself, you don't need us. Just right. read the document. Yeah. Yep. So, okay. All right, yep. and so and, and I'll, I'll. Is my dad on the line? Did he call in yet or no? Yeah, I'm I'm oh. on the line. Okay. I don't okay, know. So... I don't know how I don't know how I'm going to interject here because yeah, I guess I would if you're just going to go over the citizenship, I would read um, you know the definitions here. You got nation, then you got state, uh, the foreign nation, you know, um, and then go into a little bit more discussion on it. Yeah, and I yeah. and I think. Mike, um, just just chime in when you have a question, or if you want to 
kind of guide the discussion at all. We just have a regular, normal conversation about it <laughs> because it is, it is just for auditory learners, um, people that might not get into the material unless they're guided this way. I mean, so. Yep, okay. okay. And if it's no good, we'll throw it out. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it is what it is. <laughs> yeah. No big deal, so. Yep. Okay. And then, yeah, but if there is a premise, like the stuff that you were talking about, if you want to start with the hierarchy of law tonight, that's totally fine, too. Okay. Yeah, that's something that uh, popped up a few months ago. My dad actually saw it, and I thought it helps so people can start to understand the layers to law, right? Not, not all law is created equal. Like there is a chain of command in law systems, and so that, that diagram really helps with that. Yeah, and maybe maybe you do want to start with that tonight, just kind of show that, and we can, uh, I don't know that it'll be up, but if you just want to go through that one. Yeah, uh, just list them, just read them off. Yeah, just tell us what you know about it. Not to put you on the spot there, uh, yeah. you know, Patrick, or anything like <laughs> uh <-huh>. that. <laughs> I'll do what I, I mean, can. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the point of this whole thing is that you've been studying this, I've been studying this. You, you can look at a, anybody can look at a document, but once you've like really gotten through some of this material, you have insights that people aren't going to get the first time they check stuff out. This is just a, what we're doing is we're cutting the learning curve down for people. So mm -hmm. it'll work. It'll work. Okay. Sounds good. So, okay, so here here we go. As if it, we might just start here with the recording. I don't know. I'll just have to listen to it. But I wanted to welcome people to Foundations. Um, I don't know the date. What's today? December 16th, 2018? Oh, it's yes. December 16th, 2018. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, so, and it's about 3 o'clock Alaska time. We um, have about five degrees outside, five degrees above. We've uh, Yesterday we had three hours, 46 minutes of daylight. Today we're down to three hours, 45 minutes. We lost a minute since yesterday. I guess if you include twilight time, we get an extra 40 minutes. And so if you're going to go out and take your dog for a walk when it's daylight, you gotta, you got to get up and go and get out there and get back. Um, otherwise, we're, we're out there with our headlamps on. Tonight we are welcoming again Patrick and his dad Mike from Michigan talking about the status correction class. Tonight we're covering hierarchy of law and the citizenship diagrams and we're doing our best to get the citizenship diagrams up um, and screen share those with, as, as we go through them. Um, and so I got a, uh, a nice uh, hierarchy of law diagram from Patrick a few minutes ago, and we're just going to start with that first off. Hey, Patrick. All right, yeah, so starting with the hierarchy of laws. Um, just to list them off, and we'll kind of do a little description for each kind of layer of different systems of law that I think have been developed over time. Um, I'm not really sure who made this diagram, but I found it very useful in trying to sort them out. Um, we start in law, all law systems with universal laws, and universal laws deal with energies. Main principle, whatever energy you put out must come back to you. Built on top of universal law goes into natural laws, 
And natural laws deal with the natural ways of all objects and beings which have manifested in the third dimension. And natural laws to me would be a lot of these principles of nature itself, you know, cycles of weather and animal behavior, plant life, all that stuff is kind of it's beyond our control or it was created by a higher power than us. Um, following natural laws, we're going to laws of maxim, also known as God's laws. These laws come straight out of the Bible and are the highest laws of the land. They are rights given by God to all beings and cannot be taken away by anyone. Um, to me, this is an extension of the Declaration of Independence. Um, when the founding fathers talked about, uh, we find these uh, to be uh, self-evident truths. Uh, self-evident um, to me is that higher power. It's a established principle that's been recognized by society or civilization time and time again, that it's, that it's just an accepted principle. Um, after laws of maxim, we go into a sovereign, which is a human being, a being that is master of self, operates under God's laws, has the ability to create laws and constitutions for itself and corporations that it creates. After sovereign law, we get contract law, a set of laws which sovereigns worldwide adhere to in commerce. Offer plus acceptance equals contract. After contract law comes treaties, laws made between two sovereigns that deal with a particular tract of land. Then we have constitutions, laws created by a sovereign that govern a corporation created by a sovereign. We have corporations, uh, a dead fictitious entity operates under the laws of the constitution developed by the sovereign, does not have the ability to create laws, can only create codes, statutes, and ordinances. Then we get federal codes, codes which govern corporations within corporations, includes the use uh, uniform commercial codes then after the federal codes a, a sub-department of that would be the police corporations and agencies um, private agencies or corporations they belong to uh, equivalent to a private citizen i don't know that i completely agree with that but we're just going to go with it because this is a kind of a generalized terminology of these different systems of law um, the last one being a citizen which is uh, according to this diagram a slave of the corporation um, maybe a subject of the corporation would be a little bit better, but to which it pledges. It does not have rights, only has privileges, which are given to it by the corporation to which it pledges. A, a little bit more depth to this, which for the way that I see it, um, their definition of a citizen would be in direct relation to a U.S. citizen, which is a corporate citizenship under our current system of governance. It is a different status than a, than a state citizen. Um, state citizens prior to the 14th Amendment were also called United States citizens. They were one and the same. And a state citizen was known as a sovereign, a sovereign without subjects. Um, this had to go, this fit in well with a lot of the rights from Thomas Jefferson and George Washington, and they referred to it as popular sovereignty. And where, you know, the people in that, in that body politic the citizens that, that made up that body politic did not have to answer to anyone as long as they did not cause an injury or trespass on rights. So it is a, it's a little bit, you need a little more depth to kind of break down these different systems of law and where people fit in because there are so many different entities um, that come into play now as, as civilization has evolved and changed over the years. So I don't know if there's any questions you might have in relation to that little breakdown of the laws or. Yeah, I'm interested to hear what was what was it that you disagreed with on the one just above citizenship. 
Uh, as far as what the, the police corporations and agencies or our corporation, what are we looking at here? Sorry, I'm I'm not able to look at it right now because of what oh, we're doing here. Yeah. No, I can't look at it, but it was just before oh, okay. you got to the ship, yep. there was a, some, some disagreement you had with the information. Yeah, when they break down police corporations and agents, um, they say it's equivalent to a private citizen, and I disagree. Um, police corporations and agents would still be considered a public citizen um, or a corporate citizen. They're because they're legal fictions. They don't exist in the private realm. To me, a private citizen can only be a man, um, living blood, you know, like a, a living soul, living spirit. In their private right, not, capacity, they, they exist on their own. You're, they don't. Yeah, they're not, not a legal fiction. Yeah, they're not a person, a human, an individual. Uh, all the different legal terminologies that are applied to man. They're, right. Yeah. Yep. I agree well, with and that. And that is a status. Yeah, and that is a status. I believe only applies to again the the man, the individual. You know, the living soul. So that that's a little bit off, I think, but more or less, it kind of gives you a an overview of some different bodies of law and how they interact. Okay, and, and I think that hierarchy is really good for people because we haven't, most of us haven't been trained in that understanding of what the pecking order of the law forms, the law. Right, yeah. What do you call those individual What would you call those individual breakdowns? Sorry? I'm sorry, can you repeat that? No, go ahead and repeat that, please. What, what do you call those individual breakdowns? Individual breakdowns is what? On, on a hierarchy, what would you, bodies of law? I would just call them different bodies of law or different layers um, because some of these are private law, some of these are public laws. You know, like treaties would be under public international law, but contract law is private law. Um, that's between individuals. Okay. And, okay. And, 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 it, and it can be it can be between legal entities as well. So there again, but it's usually in a private capacity, not in a public. It doesn't apply to everybody in general. Just the people that are parties to the contract, right? Which would make it a private agreement or a private deal, private law. Okay. Okay. Suffice it to say, that's our study on private versus public right now. I want to. Yeah, I really that... want to get into that in the future because it is so confusing to me. So anyway, but I think I heard Mike uh, pop up there. Did you have something? Yeah, I was just I was just going to interact here and say that yeah, there's basically like three three layers here. You've got your universal natural laws. Um, then you have your public and private international laws. Um, you know, the sovereign um, would be considered a type. And then contract, you got contract, uh, would be the constitution, corporations. Um, those are private contract laws, not um, public international laws. The other thing, too, is that the thing I struggled with for a long time is citizen. Because what they have here is, as far as in the hierarchy of laws, the citizen, they have, a, have it as a slave of a corporation uh, which it pledges. And I thought that, that was, that's the um, definition of citizen. But there's different uh, terminologies of that. There's different uh, capacities of a citizen. And it took me a long time to, to realize that you can use the word citizen without uh, meaning that you're a slave to a corporation. Because there yeah, are a lot different of different capacities that you can operate in. Yeah, see, a lot of times it seems we fall victim to oversimplification of, and, it, and it's not necessary because we don't have all the information. So we're trying to connect dots that it's it's hard to understand the mechanisms when you don't have all the, all the gears or all the cogs that are that are in motion here. It's like we're missing part. 
And so we're led down paths that aren't as, they're like half-truths, right? And it's not necessarily that a lot of the stuff we get is bold-faced lies. It's just that we're not seeing the whole story. When there's more to it, there's more depth that needs to be brought to light for us to really grasp what the implications are so we can actually, you know, understand what's happening. Exactly right. And that's, that's why we're going to look at these diagrams tonight. And I think, I think it's a simple truth to say that the reason that we're looking at these different capacities of citizenship is um, because if there is a way to correct the status to bring us back under common law, we want to be able to do that. Is that, is that your view as well? Yes, let's be able to, yes. to have your standing. Yeah, to have to have property rights, to to be able to you know claim ownership of of your house, of your body, of your children, you know all these things that we're fighting, you know pretty much at every level today now. You know even the right to educate is is something that's being threatened now with homeschoolers. <laughs> so so yeah, it's a yeah. it's a very wide you know reaching topic that needs to be addressed. Um, yeah, I agree. Yeah, but but I want to say that our objective, I think, well, my objective is definitely. Um, to restore common law. That's the simplest way I can say that. And I think we've been deprived of it. I think it's been covered over and I think we need to, to, to pull back the layers and get back down to that basic. So right. that's why and Just a small note on that. Yeah, because it's not so much to me as far as restoring it. It's about changing our status so we have the rights of the common law being applied to us again. Because from my understanding, it was the contract. There was a contract took place that changed our status. And this is why we're not getting common law you know, treatment in the courts. It's not that common law is gone. It's just that when you change your status to the individual, those protections that have been written in the Constitution no longer apply to you. So you severed your tie to the document that was written to help safeguard against these very things. The Although you really so have, you haven't done this, you are presumed to have done this. So that's, yeah, but we agree. We agree. Yeah, yeah, it's kind of the same thing as what is the actual mechanism that created the problem? That's what we're trying to figure out. Um, but for, I was, the only point I was trying to make is that the states still operate in their common law capacity. Contracts are still operated under the principles of common law. And a good code to look at just to kind of help verify that is the UCC 1-103. Okay. Because a, a lot of people, I mean, this might be a little off topic, but a lot of people go in saying, oh, the UCC, and I've been told this many times, is now the law of the land. It superseded the Constitution, and that is not true. Um, UCC 103 under, under subsection B in there, it clearly says, you know, unless displaced by particular provisions of the UCC, the principles of law and equity, including the law merchant and the law relative to capacity to contract, principal and agent, estoppel, fraud, misrepresentation, duress, coercion, mistake, bankruptcy, and other validating or invalidating cause supplement its provisions. So it's saying right here that it, it has, all the UCC has to be in alignment with the law and equity that predates it. This is secondary law. The common law and equity is primary law for the state citizen. Absolutely, I agree with you. Um, my, my only question about claiming common law under uniform commercial code, you know, I'm, Perfectly great if we're using if we're claiming that to divert away from commercial law back to the law of the land. Mm -hmm. I'm not I'm not good with claiming it under UCC if that if we're 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 making co our common law subservient to commercial mm -hmm. law. 
No, and it's not that. It's just that I'm trying to show that even in the body of commercial law, right, which is the UCC, which is the, the regulation for administering securities and bonds and financial instruments, it has to be interpreted in alignment with the common law, right? The common yes. law predates and, it. The common law supersedes it. Um, yes, and this is yeah. America, our, our country is a common law. Be, Correct. The 50 union states. Have always been and will always be common law countries. When I say restore common law, it's probably more that we need to know it so that we can enforce it. It's well, a hearts and minds thing. Right. And well, and this is where it comes back to the status. In order to claim protection as a common law, you have to have a proper status. And all right. That's, so let's that's, where this, that's where all this research goes. Yeah. But we're on the same page. <laughs> all right. Very good. All right. Let's get into the citizenship diagrams. Unless you have something else, Mike. No, that's I'm good. All right, thanks. Okay, let's. Uh, I think we've got it on screen share on page, top of page two, and go yep. through it. Yeah, just go through it however you see, and then I'll, I'll interrupt. And Mike, you can interrupt too. Well, yeah, starting on page two, it's just trying to help show um, how different national governments or different governments in you know civilization are developed or how they are created. And um, like most countries over in Europe, they don't, they have the EU now, but it's kind of something different. It's not the same as what we have set up here. Most countries over there have a singular national government. And that government has jurisdiction over all the people and corporations within that, within their territorial jurisdictions. Um, so this diagram is just trying to show how there's a singular national government with a singular legislative uh, domestic territory. And that domestic territory under that single government is the extent of their jurisdiction. So, you know, Germany has boundaries and, and the Congress of Germany or whatever they've set up cannot ex go beyond those boundaries. Um, when we get into America, because we have a federation, it's a little bit different. Um, we have, they're trying to show the fact that there are different body politics in play in the way that we're set up. Um, the 50 union states all make up their own essential national government. Um, the federal government only has um, the jurisdiction or the, uh, I guess, the delegated authority that was given to it per the Constitution. So it's not like other countries where a national government has general jurisdiction. In our country, the federal government only has you know, subject matter jurisdiction in, in reference to what is written in the Constitution that the states created, right? The states were first. The states created... Um, their own body politics and then formed um, the United States federal government through the Constitution. Yep. So to me, that's okay. just kind of showing the separation, how it's a little bit, there's another layer in there, which again leads to some of the confusion when people think, I run into all the time, that the federal government has general jurisdiction and they do not. Um, the only general jurisdiction they have is what this diagram will kind of go into later and we'll, we'll get to that. But this just kind of helps us. So it's giving you, you know, the definition of body politic, you know, being a group of people, the different legislative bodies in relation to those body politics and how there's a clear distinction between those organizations, between those, those you know, groups of people. So is there anything else you kind of want to go on on page two there or? Um, bottom part, just what you're saying makes me think of 19 enumerated powers. Yep. Yeah, that's exactly what it is. Okay, yep. So um, they don't have general jurisdiction. They only have subject matter jurisdiction restricted to those 19 powers. 
Correct. And I, I think a good definition, too, is the one there in the green box, um, the Black's Law Dictionary, second edition on federal government. Um, this is when I first read, too, that a federal government is typically distinguished by the fact that they don't interact with people. They only interact with the sovereign state. So the federal government was set up to monitor and interact for the state, not for people. Now, this so is where why, the, that's the reason why if you go into federal court or into court and bring up the Constitution as, as something that you interact with, the judge doesn't like it very well. <laughs> yeah, and it kind of, because a lot of those claims, again, come back to, well, do you have the status to claim protection of that documents? And most people at this current juncture don't. Um, legally, we don't have the status in order to claim those protections, which is what adds to the frustration that these judges experience, not that the, I'm, I just, my belief that a lot of these judges are ignorant to this too. I mean, they're trained and, and pushed through these schools just like every, you know, most other people are. There's a lot of information that's not given to them that they, that they should have, um, which then leads to more, you know, more problems. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So then moving on to that next page. I think this one is really, really an important page as you go through the rest of the document because it shows, it color codes which United States we're talking about. I think this is going to be really interesting to people that there are four yeah. different. Uh, yeah, the, the, yeah, the capacity of the United States. And, and this, to me, I believe has, has maybe, has possibly changed a little bit um, due to the Civil War, but it would have been only minor changes. Um, but just starting out with the court case, well, yeah, with the term United States, it can be used in several senses, right? And, and you break it down, like you said, four different interpretations of the United States. So this immediately, to me, when I read it, begged the question, well, if United States can be interpreted in this many different ways, then obviously, when you say United States citizen, that must have different definitions, too. You can't have multiple definitions for United States, but only have one definition for a U.S. citizen, right? So this is where, yep. again, the complexity starts to come in, and you're trying to like, okay, so there's more going on here. And if United States has multiple meanings, then how many meanings does U.S. citizen have, and what context um, does it change, you know, what that, what that phrase may mean? So, yeah, they're just showing, okay, so you have the federal government as one of the United States, um, the federal government in its corporate sense, because it's there to regulate um, and oversee and provide services for the sovereign states. Um, so they're showing here, when you go to the right and the blue, that, that this is the subject matter jurisdiction given to the federal government by the states of the union. And then you go to the left circle there, and you can see that they have, ex they have another capacity where they have exclusive jurisdiction. So this would be the general jurisdiction that like a national government has in, in a foreign country like Germany. And the exclusive jurisdiction, again, in court, it, it covers unorganized territory, organized possessions, unorganized possessions, and most importantly, um, Washington, D.C. Washington, D.C. is under the exclusive jurisdiction of Congress. Now, this will come in play later when we start talking about where you domicile and what law forms apply to you. Um, so this is important to understand that the, under the Constitution, they have exclusive jurisdiction to make all needful rules and laws in reference to federal territory, not the states. That's a clear distinction. And then what about the one in black, the United States of America, the nation in the political sense? Yes, I can. So 
the United States of America would be under public international law, the country as a whole. Um, they're not individual states in that capacity. Because this is public international law and it's political, this is where you have the applications of treaties and um, you know, ambassadors and things like that. They're operating in their you know, official capacity for the union of states. So and another way that I kind of break it apart is when I was reading some of the stuff on the charter for the Universal Postal Union, which is based out of Switzerland, they made a clear distinction in their constitution and their charter of a country and a nation. And so part of the way that I keep it straight for myself is what they use for their definitions, that being a country is politically heter heter heterogeneous. There, there's multiplicity of, of political status there. And a nation is, is um, homogeneous, they're singular. So like this is so the, the states are nation states. They all have, if I'm, I'm in Michigan, I'm a, I'm a Michiganian. We're all Michiganians, that's our nationality. There is no other nationality in this body politic. When you get into the United States of America, then this is where it would be a country because there's multiple nationalities. There was Wisconsinites, there's Floridians, there's um, New Yorkers. Michigan, Michiganians, you know, so these, you see that there's multiple nationalities that make up the country, whereas a nation to me is singular. There's only one political um, government. There's only one entity there, if that helps, if that makes sense. It does, yeah, and it's when the United States of America, the, um, the nation? I'm sorry, is it a country or a nation? <laughs> yeah, that, so the United States of America would be the country because it has multiple nations that make up the country. Okay, okay, all right, sorry about yep. that. Uh, I was following, but... Um, no, it's fine, <laughs> anyway, uh, questions are good, yeah. It's just, it's, it's amazing because we've used these terms interchangeably our whole lives and haven't, and most of us haven't, haven't parsed the differences, but it's when the country the United States of America goes to, is, is operating with other sovereign nations in the international uh, world. Yeah. Right, okay. and treaty making in like their official capacity as, again, as a government, right? So they're holding uh, an office of privilege um, okay. and they're operating that capacity with certain obligations and certain protections put in place. Um, as opposed to them like, now just for distinction purposes, the United States can operate in its corporate capacity and it can do business. So in that capacity, they're not under public international law, they're under private international law because they're doing business and they're involved in contract law. Which one is Donald Trump president of? Uh, my interpretation would be both. That's okay. the dual capacity, just like a lot of these courts, all these courts have dual, dual capacity. And they change depending on the status of the, what is the case being heard or what is the status of individuals coming in, you know, for whatever property disputes in question or whatever is being done. It's dependent on the individuals. The court can change. Just like okay. they said, they've, they've blurred the line, right? They've merged law and equity. Um, a lot of times because equity gives you a more um, ideal outcome. It can do things, equity can do things that, that aren't necessarily possible in the common law. So that's why they work together very well, because they're kind of based on the same principles, you know, um, but they have different mechanisms 
So sometimes one works better than the other. And a lot of times, from my understanding, if there's a remedy in the law, then the law must be used. The only time you go to equity is if there's not a, a remedy within the law. Okay. But we'll that's get, kind of we'll a side note. <laughs> yeah, we'll get to that we, some other time. We do want to get into all that, definitely. Nope. But let's go, on, <laughs> let's go on to the, let's just try to stick with this topic for tonight so that people get a clear idea. So. Yeah, and if, if people, if they wanted to go to the U.S. government printing office style manual, um, mm -hmm. it, it spells out all the nationalities for every state. Yeah, I think yep. it's five, section 525.23. Uh, uh, oh, okay. I was going to say 5.22. Yeah. Yeah, it's somewhere in there. But yeah, they actually list out all the nationalities of all the different, you know, the 50 nation states. Yeah. Yeah, and I think that is definitely new to people, too, that each state is really uh, defined under law of nations as uh, free, sovereign, and independent nation yep yep absolutely okay all right moving along yep so we're going to uh, page four here United States a closer look this is United States in red so this is the federal territory and possessions so this is them operating under their exclusive jurisdiction granted to them um, by the Constitution uh, and they just list off again our article 4 section 3 clause 2 and article 1 section 8 clause 17 um, Congress shall have power to suppose and make all needful rules and regulations respecting the territory or other property Belonging to the United States nothing as constitution shall be construed to prejudice any claims of the United States uh, or of any particular state So the, the key term there is other property Because um, that's kind of where I think we've got we've got pulled into as well um, with, our, with the status change that we went through. So the fact that they were giving this power and, and, there, and there's essentially no limitations on it, um, which is kind of weird to think that the founding fathers would have, would have been that short-sighted, but maybe, maybe it wasn't intentional, maybe it wasn't. Maybe this was uh, an oversight to think that they could create a federal government that, and then grant them this amount of power um, to make any rules or regulations that they want to. But that is definitely, well, to me, the red hat. That's the loophole that we need to be on guard for because that's a, that's a risk right there. That's a red flag. <laughs> well, I, is it the perception has changed that Congress has plenary power over the 50 union states when it was really just meant to um, have plenary power over District of Columbia and the territories to make all needful rules? Um, when you think about executive orders, those are for the good administration of this government. They're not meant to cover, they're not meant to, to, to cover the people of the 50 union states. Right, I'd say the only thing that's different, and see, so once you, if your status is not one of the people of the, of the nation states, if your status is that of um, a US franchise, right, a US person, a US individual, to me, that's where you, now you're coming under the other property clause of this, because as a U.S. franchise or as a U.S. person, you are you are now considered other property of the United States. You're no longer, do you, you see what I'm saying? You're no longer a part of the state, the nation states of the union. Yes, yes, and that that is my understanding of the problem. Yep. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yep. 
Um, so yeah, and then also Clause 17, to, to exercise exclusive legislation in all cases whatsoever over such district, not exceeding 10, 10 miles square. So, and this is where I believe by changing the status of people, because they knew they couldn't change their territorial boundaries. Um, the other workaround was, again, to get people to contract into their district, right? Get, they had to get people into where they had the authority because they could not change the limitations imposed on them by the state, by the Constitution. Right. Yep. Okay. And um, I think it's also Nelson, but it, yeah, it talks about the, the seat of government being uh, in this district too, because it, from my understanding, then this is where you get the law of domicile coming in the United States. Is, is domiciled in D.C. on unsettled territory. So that kind of has an effect too when we get into lawmaking um, further down the road that we'll talk about. Okay. But yeah, this is it. So it's just showing you now that the diagram is actually talking about your federal area, which is the District of Columbia. And now you have incorporated territory and unincorporated uh, possessions. Um, and it kind of just breaks down those different islands and um, it's interesting to note that you can see that when Alaska and Hawaii were just territories, they were under this jurisdiction of the United States. Once they became states, they were removed, right? Mm -hmm. Showing that the clear distinction, once you reach statehood, the United States and its exclusive jurisdiction ends, that no longer applies. Right, and you're admitted to the Union on equal footing as the original 13 colonies came in. Correct, yep. So this is the importance of understanding being incorporated into a certain body politic, right? As once these, once these states or these territories are seated or organized with the government and they become, in, and they, they don't get the protections until they are incorporated into the union, right, by statehood. So this is where you start to understand once you're incorporated into certain things, this is when your rights, this is when your standing, your capacities uh, change. Um, but it's important to understand being being incorporated as far as being somebody like you know outside of you know, being unincorporated. Mm -hmm. So yeah, we can just kind of move on. So we want to go to page five. Yep. So they're showing here again just the separation of powers with the federal government, the United States, and its capacity to the states of the union and then its own separate capacity in its geographic sense. Um, the definitions under Title 26 are kind of important. Um, let's see, do they list them in here? Yeah, so United States, the term United States and under Title 26, which is the tax code, term United States when used in a geographical sense includes only the states and the District of Columbia. Now, it's important because they, again, this is where they kind of lead people astray. When you look up the definition of states under Title 26, I get it written down here, the term state shall be construed to include District of Columbia where such construction is necessary to carry out provisions of this title. So from my understanding, under Title 26, United States is federal territory. It does not include the Union, uh, the states of the Union. Right, and right on the document there, it says for USC subsection 110D state includes any territory or possession of the United States. Right. So it's I, not I, 
I'm not sure why they jumped. I don't like jumping to different titles because certain titles of, of the code mean different things. So title, I, I wish they would have just stuck with Title 26 on this diagram because they have a definition of state right after United States, and that's the one that I read off. Because um, Title 4, you'd have to look up U.S. code to see what it's titled, what that applies to. And it's different than the taxing authority, right? It's, it's, that, that title is written for a different purpose than for taxing. So where are the definitions? for Title 26. It could be that this definition is Lots of they, refer to they have United States under 7701A9, and then if you look at 7701A10, the very next definition in the same place, they define state. And that's where it tells you that it includes DC where it is necessary. Um, because other, because this is a, the tax law was is internal revenue. It's it's to create revenue for the you know it's a local tax. It's supposed to apply only for on federal territory, not in the states. Um, so that's why again they're trying to use their the word games here to to mislead people into thinking that it includes the whole country, right? Like we talked about earlier, when it actually only includes federal territory. Does it? Do you happen to know if? Title 26 applies to the unorganized territories and possessions. Is is it is this I, are they I'm on the right path sure. here? I, yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure if they apply there or not. My guess would be no. Um, but they those unorganized territories are under the rule of Congress anyway. So if Congress wanted to pass, I mean, they could literally write and pass anything they wanted as it would apply to that territory because they have possession of it and they have the jurisdiction or they have the authority to do that. So I, I'm not exactly sure if they apply 20, Title 26 to territories and possessions or not, um, but they might have a separate body of law that, that you know, accomplishes that task if they're trying to raise revenue. Uh, I'm not really sure though. So in your view, looking at this, does Title 26 only apply to DC? Yes. Yes, okay. the majority of it. I guess I would have I, there, I would have to say there's one caveat to that, and that is the fact that because even as a state citizen, as a non-resident um, alien, if you do trade or business with the United States, then then it would apply. Um, but that would be sure. the only time it would have to be trade or business with the United States, and so that's why I would say it's more of like a private law. Like there's there's a certain thing that has to take place in order for it to come to life. It's not public law where it's generally applied to everybody in the body politic. There's certain requirements that need to be met that would then put the law into effect, like doing business or trade with the United States or on federal territory. Then their taxing jurisdiction would come in. That's the way that right. I understand and it. That's my current understanding as well, but we're always open to learning more on the terminology being used in Title 26. Yeah. Yep. And there's, I mean, a lot of people have done a lot of research on that. And it can, again, this is where it gets very complex and you're trying to sort through the different terminology, the words they're using, how they're being applied, what's the context. So yeah, the, the tax law can get quite wrapped around, but I think that's where as a non-resident, we can simplify a lot of it because most of those things, again, just don't apply. It's very streamlined, and there's some definitions in there that kind of that we can go get to in a little bit here that would help clarify some of that, I think. Okay. So next page is page six. Yep, page six. 
So they talk about kind of the same thing. Uh, this is right here. So at the bottom of this, the, the U.S. versus Wong Kim Ark uh, court case from 1898 was, again, another very, very instrumental for my understanding or for my to get context to what's happening. And by far the most important line to me was the fact that each individual at his birth has two distinct legal states or conditions. Um, I've been studying this stuff for a long time, and any status I've ever heard has always just been political status. Um, everyone talked about status correction, but then it was always related to like a passport and, um, you know, like citizenship expatriation, which I just, it didn't make sense to me, I guess. I don't know. So I kept looking. Reading through this case, when they start talking about two distinct legal states, it started to make more sense. And this is where the idea of a civil status or your legal status comes into play. Um, and, and that is dependent on your domicile. And so that's when you got to kind of get into the law of domicile and start to understand the different ways that they, I guess, administer that. Because probate, when they do probates for estates and stuff like that, wills, it's that doing some study on that can be pretty lightning as far as the, what is the procedure. I mean, because like someone could be a citizen um, domiciled in New York, he could be living temporarily in Switzerland. And if he dies in Switzerland, and he has property over there, that property is going to be um, adjudicated or, you know, probated under the laws of, the, of his domicile, which is back in New York. So you can see. Okay, kind of, well, like, you... Yeah, yeah. Let's, let's take a minute to um, yep. talk about the difference between nationality and domicile. First of all, I think those are the two, big two. Yeah, yep. So, so the nat nationality... Yeah, the, the, the nationality to me is just that that's your political status. Um, and that is the purpose of the birth certificate. That creates your, your natural person or your personhood as far as your um, being incorporated into the body politic of the state or whatever, you know, body politic is in, in power there. You know, whoever, who is the sovereign, whether they've been elected, whether they've taken it by force, whatever. When you're born and you give and you get that birth certificate, that is establishing your nationality and your political status for public international law. So this is what applies when we go to travel and you get a passport. This is what gives us the right to travel to other countries that the United States, as its federal government, has made treaties with, right? That we go in and do business and we can travel there and we're going to be protected. So there has to be some official way of counting you among the numbers of people who have. Uh, people who are like counting you among the numbers of how many New Yorkers there are or, or defining you as one of the people who have the, I don't know if nationality goes to your privileges and immunities as a New Yorker, for example. Mm -hmm. Yes, I would think so um, because that's what they established was, well, I mean, one of the requirements, right? Like being a native born. Being a native born and incorporated into the body politic, you were um, entitled to certain privileges and certain immunities. Uh, and that's what was, I guess, to me, again, the biggest difference with what was set up as a government here was that the state citizen, one of the people born here that was incorporated into body politic, was given the status of a sovereign. I don't know of any other country in the world, uh, any other nation in the world, that has given its citizenry that status. Okay, um, and could for, you call that instead of calling that a citizen of the state because we're talking about nationality mm -hmm. would it what is a citizen and a national the very same for that application 
in that context, it would be yes. Um, that's where you get into some of these other definitions where they talk about nationality and citizenship being essentially synonymous. Um, they can right. be used interchangeably. But this is where the context comes in because this is only in relation to public international law, like in your relation to other sovereign um, body politics, you know, other organized political entities. Okay, so basically it applies to everybody who's a New Yorker, regardless of what private contracts they enter into. Not regardless. It is, a, it is the first marker, I guess, of the rights that you're entitled to by being a native born. But that's, okay. this, is a, this is a double-edged sword because as being a sovereign, right, you, you, are, you, you have full capacity to contract, which is a lot of freedom, and with a lot of freedom comes a lot of responsibility. So if you get involved in a contract, this is where you go back to the hierarchy of laws. Contract law supersedes constitutional law. Okay, okay, that makes sense. So, so yeah. being, a, being a national or a citizen of New York, you can, it's, a, it's a more broad application. Um, the privileges and immunities of a natural born citizen are, like you say, I guess you have to say it that way, it's, it's a public thing. And if you right. enter into contracts, then you're entering into things that might that might change that relationship. Uh, that, right, because you're going into private law now. Yeah. Okay. Okay. All yeah. right. Okay. And then yeah. a domicile. If you have your domicile, if you're if you're like me, I've I've just recently declared as a New Yorker. Um, because we have people going back to uh, 1750 in White Plains and, and uh, uh, Revolutionary War, war mm -hmm. uh, officer going back to 1776. So I say, I say I'm a New Yorker because I want to continue to be a New Yorker in that tradition. But I'm permanently domiciled on the land and soil of Alaska. Yep. So when you get into domicile, though, there's a key definition that I like to use, um, which is a concept known as elected domicile. And this is out of Black's Law 6 edition, in which an elected domicile is uh, the domicile of parties fixed in a contract between them for the purpose of such contract. So you can see that even if you have a permanent or what you consider a physical domicile, you can change that even though you've not physically moved. You can claim a domicile through a, through a process of election. Okay. And the other important thing to remember too is your you the the living soul may have a domicile, but you also have a legal person, right? This is the civil status, or this is your straw man entity. That I believe okay. everyone, and this this is an extension of the two distinct legal states. I believe one is you, the man; one is you, the legal person. That's used in you know like public law or, or private international law, where you're doing you're doing business with public entities like corporations. And this is I've been told. No, you know this is a lot of the research that I got from Winston Shrout. You know you can't mix public and private. You know uh, mm -hmm. especially because in the public and corporations they carry debt and a man cannot carry debt, right? So you need this interface. And from my understanding, that's where the straw man comes in. That's your legal person. And just because you live in Alaska, doesn't mean that's where you have domiciled your legal person. Okay. Does that, does that make sense? That, that legal person could be domiciled in DC. Yes. 
I believe that's, that's what that's, has happened. But yes, that's, I mean, you, you could claim, uh, it's kind of the same thing. Like I could, I could live in Illinois, but I could set up a corporation under the laws of Michigan. And, and if the principal place of business for that corporation was, Mich- was Michigan, then that corporation would be a Michigan citizen or a Michigan domicile, even though I'm living in Illinois. Do you see? How yeah, you can have I think separation, I, even yeah. though you're you're still liable because you're the registered owner of that entity, and that entity is liable for the laws of Michigan, even though I live in Illinois. Okay, I think we are beginning to understand the definitions and the problems. Yep. <laughs> this is the separation, this is that duality, or this this the two legal states, and I think this is why. Well, part of the reason why it's not been, you know passed around and we haven't known about it because this is part of their mechanism that they're using to establish their jurisdiction, their authority. Mm-hmm. Yep. So yeah, so understanding the so then the political status is for a man, the legal status or civil status is for a legal entity. You know, mm-hmm. corporations, juristic persons, uh, limited liability companies, they can't have a political status because they're not real. All they have is a domicile, and this goes into the law of domic or the public, private international law, which is also called conflict of laws. And because you have multiple sovereignties that might be trying to administer or correct a problem, you have they go by the domicile to determine who has the authority to to settle the dispute and which law applies in that dispute. And that's kind of the Are importance you- of this case, as they're saying that the guy in either way he was a British subject, but in one way he would have been you know domiciled in one country, in another you know, way he might have been domiciled in another country, and those different countries have different laws. So that's where the domicile comes into play. Is that legal domicile or physical? It could be both, but from my understanding, again, when you deal with a legal person, it's it's legal domicile. It's a legal home. Right. Okay. And contract. Is a, okay. And is a legal person the same as a vessel in commerce? I would say yes. Okay. Yeah, I think that would be pretty more similar. Yeah, that's a lot of people, you know, the straw man or the, you know, your your interface. Some people call it a transmitting utility. I don't I don't agree with that term, <laughs> but some people call it that. It's it's an interface um, for the man to to interact with, you know, the world of legal fictions that use debt and insurance and hypothecation, you know, things that would cause that that real people can't do. You know, we we can only live in the moment. We can't live in the future. We can't live in the past. But corporations well, kind of can, right? They, they're more, they have more leeway. Sure, yeah. We've just recently heard that Ted Stevens still lives. We, <laughs> yeah, we, uh, yeah. uh, and he actually, there's actually correspondence coming out of the new senator's office under that name, and he lives as a corporation in Washington, D.C. Mm-hmm. That was interesting. And um, the is. other thing to take this a little further um, just just in case people aren't confused enough I um, I think of the man as being created in God's image and the body your your physical body being a vessel so when we talk about the man we're talking about a creature but it's it's the soul rather than yeah. yep. the physical body Anyway. Yeah, and that yeah, it kind of, well, it comes down because a simpler way to break it down too is this, is simple property rights. I mean, I'm mm-hmm. in possession. I have all the risk. I have all the liability of this body. If I don't take care of this body, uh, you know, it is it comes back to me, right? It's my loss. Mm-hmm. I have to feel the pain. I feel the injury. Nobody else does. So that's where you know, through just breaking it down into a, a property issue and, and possession thing, you know, and I, maybe that's where the whole you know, possession is nine tenths of the law type stuff comes from. 
Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, but yeah. Yeah. Um, and just I want to hit again, there's another point out of this court case that is important that they didn't underline. But he is making the clear point that it is the civil status, which is universally governed by the single principle of domicile, universally governed. So that's what we're saying. This applies to all, all, all civilized nations. It doesn't matter if you're in the United States or in Europe or Asia. <laughs> this is, you know, the kind of the same because this is private international law. This is the law of sovereigns. And um, it is the civil status that determines your, your, uh, your rights. It is, and they don't, they, because this is the difference between a civil law nation and a common law nation. I've read research that in a civil law nation, your nationality will come into play for certain instances. But under common law, they do not rely on your nationality for, for really anything. That's really a moot point. It all comes back to your civil status, which is based on your domicile. So I think it's important that he, he is making sure to point that out in this, in this statement, that that civil status is the one that's, that is responsible for the personal rights of the party. You know, the law that determines his majority or minority, his marriage, secession, testacy, or intestacy. So he's telling us this court is, it's all about the civil status. It is not, they're not talking about political status at all. Okay, and so that, I'll just raise a red flag right there for, for us to parse out later. Um, mm-hmm. That does not seem possible. Uh, can't, it does not seem to me to be consistent with the hierarchy of law, but we'll, we'll talk about that. I'm sure we'll get into that. I know we will because it's my pet topic. So we'll, we'll save that one for another day. But I'll just put up a okay. red flag today that, yep. that I don't believe common law can be defined in any way by anything under civil law. Well, this is okay. all in alignment with the, with the common law. Yeah, just, just because you see civil, mm-hmm. don't think like um, – don't think statutes and codes like civil is bigger like this is the right civilization society like this is the body politic because this right, is what's not, been determined this i want to make been, clear though too i want to make clear though too we're not talking about civil law we're talking about civil status yeah okay. that's why I, yeah but i'm standing firm in what what i what yep. i will say and, and want to say about that but i i really yep. do want to save that for another time so, yeah. Yep. Okay. Yeah, we can come back Understood. to that. There's, I'm sure there's more research can be done to break that stuff down. <laughs> right, right. Yep. Okay. All right. So that's good for page six, unless you have more. Yep. No, no, that was pretty much yeah, it. Was just, yeah, it was very important to try to understand that and, and work through that, the two legal states of, it, of an, every individual. Yeah, that's, that's new to me. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, if you go to page seven, so then they're just trying to further break down now what, what is a U.S. citizen, what, what's being asked. Um, I'm not really going to dive just from my own personal context. Um, the way that I look at it is under public international law, again, this, is, this would be like your treaties and your law of nations. Um, we would be considered U.S. citizens. Uh, under public international law, we have a country known as the United States of America, and that is the entity that interfaces in that international community. We don't have individual states at that, in that role. So this is why we would be considered U- U.S. citizens, because you're, you're claiming citizenship of the country, right, not, not a nation state at that point. Now, when and you you're referring, private, I'm sorry, sorry, you're referring to United States number one in black. That, that United States, yeah. 
I'm your sir. When I say U.S. citizen, I'm referring to the United States of America. Um, and I think it's important because that's even what they write on the passports. Another maybe an easy way that we can help get the confusion out is when we're talking about the federal government, I, I speak, you know, United States of America versus the United States in its corporate capacity, you know, under Article 4, where they're the, the national government of District of Columbia. You know, that's a completely separate capacity. Okay. Um, because if, if you look at your passport, again, it says nationality, United States of America. So the, in that context, we would be a U.S. citizen. But when the change happens is when you go to private international law. Um, in private international law, now we have all the states as sovereign states, as separate foreign countries to each other. So under private international law, this is where I'd be, you know, again, a Michigan citizen or uh, in relation to the federal government, in relation to the United States, I would be an alien, right? I'm foreign. I'm foreign to D.C. I'm foreign to the United States in its corporate capacity, legally, not lawfully. Right. So legally, a state citizen would be a legal, legal alien. They're foreign. So, so that's where the context is so important because you can say in one breath, I am a U.S. citizen, and in the very next, you know, in a different context, I'm not a U.S. citizen. <laughs> so it makes it really yeah, hard. Answer. You've got to understand the context of what's being talked about. Yeah, there's two different capacities that you operate in. Yeah, and, and again, this kind of comes back to because of the gift we were given of sovereignty. As, as a state citizen, we have the unlimited ability to contract, right? So we are a sovereign in contract law. All sovereigns are, are liable for, contra for their contracts. So this is where if, when you get involved as a sovereign in a contract, you're, you are going to be held liable for that contract, re regardless of your you know, political affiliation. Because it's the same thing, like I even mean, mentioned last time we talked, you, know, you can't expatriate from a contract. You know, those are two different bodies of law. Like if you looked at the hierarchy of laws, you're trying to mix public and private there, and you can't mix public and private in that way. So that's the separation. And what I was saying earlier, United States one, the one in black, I'm just referring to the diagrams here. Yeah, United States in black was, yeah, the United States of America, which is the country as a whole. So all the 50 nation states and D.C., the territories, everything. It encompasses all of it. The whole ball of wax, yep, okay. Yeah, yep. Yeah, then you move, you move right, you move to the right there, and then it's United States again, and and now you're talking citizenship and nationality. That's that's the Fourteenth Amendment. That's where you don't want to be. Yeah, right. and that's where. I, yeah, and I don't know why they were lying. That's why the only thing I don't really agree with is the Fourteenth Amendment use here, because we're. Again, our, our status as a U.S. citizen is not granted by the 14th Amendment. Our status as a U.S. citizen under public international law is granted because we are native-born in one of the states of the Union. Right? We are, we are already citizens. We don't need to be naturalized, and that was never the intention of the 14th Amendment. So that's the only kind of another little caveat that I don't, I think, is a, a little bit off base, but um, it's a minor thing, something that needs to be, could be cleaned up. Okay, so... I don't know if it was or if it wasn't the intention of the 14th Amendment. My study of, of the Red Amendment by L.B. Bork uh, tells me that 
it was intentional, but it's the it's fraudulent because it uses semantic deceit um, and uses United States in the in the sense that it's United States number two in red on here of just the DC and federal territories and possessions. So mm -hmm. um, it's it's there in the Fourteenth Amendment. So that we believe that it applies to all of the the 50 union states rather than just DC and the and the territory. Yeah, and that's where some of the court sites really come in to help clarify. Let's see if I can find the one that I want um, in reference to the 14th Amendment. Uh, yeah, because the 14th Amendment wouldn't that be private international law? No, I'm still under. Well, I'm not sure if it would qualify as private because it's still operating as as a government. It's a it's an amendment to the Constitution, but it had to do with yeah clarifying. Well, the research I have says that it was four states that were brought here that were native born, so they couldn't naturalize because well there was no way for them to naturalize, and they weren't giving any legal status um, to the states. Um, they were being treated as property. So this is where the federal government has kind of stepped in to enfranchise them, not only one, to, to try to protect the, the newly freed slaves, I guess, on federal territory, because state law is its own thing. See, the 14th Amendment can't override state law anyways. But they were trying to clarify it for, because you had, back then, too, in the 1860s, federal territory was much larger. I mean, the whole West was, was all federal territory. So they were setting the, the protocol for, for slavery not being allowed on federal territory. It had nothing to do with the states, from my understanding. Um, and I believe that's why they can say, people claim it's unconstitutional, but to me it didn't affect anything with the state anyway. So it's really a moot point, whether it's constitutional or not, because it didn't affect the states. It was only in relation to the United States and their capacity that was given to them in the Constitution with exclusive jurisdiction over federal territory. Um, and part of it, too, I think they, they were trying to, they created citizenry because they had created the huge war debt from the Civil War. Um, this was yeah, part was of what they had. For, to, it was more for the United States Incorporated, not the federal government, correct? Well, I think it was both, though. I think it was both because of the loss, because of the debt that was accrued by the federal government. Um, due to the South walking out in the Civil War and all that stuff that happened, I mean, they accrued a huge amount of debt. So they had to come up with ways to raise revenue to pay off the war debt. Um, and well, that's why you see there, there was a lot of changes in the banking laws too in the, after the Civil War. Because that's when Lincoln issued greenbacks and, and you know, they changed what they were doing with the currency in the banking situation. Yeah, I, I, um, it definitely warrants further study, but that second paragraph, you know, first off, if you look at the 13th Amendment, no involuntary servitude, and then the 14th Amendment allows people to become a, a citizen of the United States, um, and it was supposedly a, a way to give, to enfranchise, like you say, the, the new yep. freed slaves. But if you look at that second paragraph of the 14th Amendment, and, and, and first of all, look at all the paragraphs and look at the way the, yeah. the type wording, the language was now being drafted in legalese and very difficult to understand. But the point Bork makes in his book about the language of that uh, second paragraph, especially, um, puts 
state citizens at war with their states. Um, and right. That, that, that's where I would just disagree. They're, they're just creating a second body politic, and it doesn't put them at war with the states. But the problem comes in is the United States can't grant because they have no territory, like they're quasi-sovereign. The, the federal government, the United States only exists at the discretion of the states. The states created it. So the United States can't give the same rights to its people that the states can give because they don't have the authority to do that. They lack the capacity. So this was essentially the next best thing that they could say, well, if you become a citizen of the United States, these, you know, you get equal protections of the laws. You don't get the Bill of Rights. You don't get the constitutions. This is, and this is what the courts have said as a second class citizenship. But it, it's not, man, it can't be forced, right? They, there is no compulsory citizenship. It still has but to be something same, else. At the same time, it appears that that's the condition of most of the people in the country. And so why is that? It, Bork says that it happened by operation of law after the but, 1868, that newly born Americans were forced into this status and, and they have the right to change it when they become of age, but most people don't know, so they never change it. And this continues to be their condition. Right, but then it comes back to, and that's why, again, the importance of the earlier court case is because you have to separate legal status or civil status from political status. And to change your domicile requires, again, there's a certain procedure set forth by the system because Congress was given the, the, the authority to regulate commerce. So, this is to me why it all points back to the SS5. Um, that's the registration of your domicile. That's what sets your civil status. And so it's not that it's through presumption or assumption. It was done through deceit, yes. And it was done through fraud, I believe, yes, because there wasn't full disclosure. But in order to correct the problem, you have to uh, direct your attention to the proper mechanism, right, the proper procedure. You can't just say fraud and expect to be, you know, going to court and prove, you have to be able to go to court and prove it through evidence. And I believe that's what most people have been missing in the research is they haven't understood the actual mechanism being used in order to change people's statuses that would make them subject to the laws of the United States. And, and your research brings you to a place where you believe it's the SS5 that um, causes you to come under plenar, the plenary oligarchy of Congress? Yes, that's what puts you into the... the the, the body of the trust or whatever, you know, under the jurisdiction of Congress, however they set it up. But yeah, it puts you into essentially the, the national government for the nation state of the United States, you know, a foreign entity to your, to your native born, you know, nation states of the union. There is a clear okay. distinction between the two. So yeah, I, I believe it's the SS5 that, that was the mechanism they used to accomplish that. So you don't have that status by virtue of your birth certificate, by, by operation of law and something that's done when you're born, you have right. that when you apply for Social Security. Right. And I believe that's through the ignorance that they've taken advantage of people because coming out of the Great Depression, which I believe was manufactured by the international bankers, you know, they constricted the money supply, called in loans, everyone folded. One of the conditions for a lot of these people that were out of work for, you know, seven, eight years was, yeah, you can get a job, but you need to get a a social security number. So when people go down there and fill out a social security application, check off U.S. citizen, and they right there, you just put yourself under their jurisdiction. And that's the and doctor so they're relying upon. And there, that, so that means you're in a contract under private international law 
which yeah. changes which which, which audio changes your symbol status. Yep. Okay. Yeah, because to me that's essentially your registered domicile. Um, you'll f I find it interesting even on the passport. The, the passport application doesn't even ever ask you point blank if you're a U.S. citizen. You know, ask if your parents are. It asks if you married somebody that was a U.S. citizen. But when you fill out that ethnic, the birth certificate as well. The birth certificate doesn't say anything about being a U.S. citizen. Um, but then you fill out that FS5 and block number five, big bold letters that says citizenship. Um, and when I read Black's Law and they've got a court case cited, Hendry, Hendry versus Masonite, and it says, for the purpose of federal diversity jurisdiction, citizenship and domicile are synonymous. So that, to me, is telling me right there that citizenship on the SS5 is actually saying domicile. It's a, federal, it's a federal document. And this is why, again, the terminology they use is legal alien. Um, when On the check boxes for the choices that you have available for you, for you to pick, it doesn't say lawful alien. Lawful alien would be a foreign national. The legal alien, well, legal is, is contract law. Contract law is private law. So this is where I, so under private contract law, what's my domicile in relation to the United States? Well, I'm an alien. I'm foreign to them. I'm a state citizen. I'm a state domicile. Okay, what was that court case you just cited? It was Hendry, H-E-N-D-R-Y, uh, v. Masonite Corp. Okay. And it's actually one of the ones cited on the definition of domicile in Black's Law Dictionary, 6th edition. Okay, and that is made part of this citizenship diagram, isn't it? I, I read it recently. Uh, it might be on citizenship diagram. I included it on my civil rights and law domicile document that I put together. Um, it's on the front page of that um, because I put the whole definition of domicile on there because that's where it also says citizenship, habitancy, residence, or several words that mean the same thing as domicile, how they're all interchangeable. Okay, and we'll go ahead and include this. We'll we'll put that as an attachment um, with the um, promo for the video of this, so that people should have it if they got an email. Right. Okay. And if you want, just right. in, in reference to the Fourteenth Amendment, there is this um, that I read off. Uh, this section contemplates two sources of citizenship and two sources only, birth and naturalization. The person declared to be citizens are all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subjects to the jurisdiction thereof. The evident meaning of these last words is not merely subject in some respect or degree to the jurisdiction of the United States, but completely you, you subject. Cut, I break you, it cut out a, you, you just cut out completely for about five seconds or so. Did I get all persons born? Yeah, start again. Yeah. All right. So this section, section one, contemplates two sources of citizenship and two sources only, birth and naturalization. The persons declared to be citizens are all persons born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof. The evident meaning of these last words is not merely subject in some respect or degree to the jurisdiction of the United States, but completely subject to their political jurisdiction and owing them direct and immediate allegiance. And that is Elk uh, versus Wilkins, 1884. So that's, you, as, as a state citizen, are we completely subject to the United States jurisdiction? No, I'm, my allegiance lies with the state of Michigan. That's my nation state, that's my country of birth. So that's where you can see that, that the 14th Amendment did not apply to state citizens. It had no impact on their status. It didn't change their status. Until they volunteer. Until there has to be another mechanism in order for that to happen. And that's where I believe it's the SS5. 
because there has to be some sort of mechanism in place in order to convert that. Um, just like you hear a lot of people in this research talk about, well, they created a, a, a straw man or a legal entity off your birth certificate, you know, without your consent and knowledge. Well, that's a clear violation of law. I mean, that's prima facie evidence of fraud, and I just don't see them doing that. Um, mm -hmm. To me, the birth certificate, the certificate of live birth is, is your natural person. I mean, and that's, that's a natural right under international law. Every person born in a, in a civilized nation state, right, has a legal person, gets, gets recognition. Um, without a title, you can't, so it, can, it comes back to, for me, enforcement of property rights. And if you don't create a record and if you don't have a title, how could you enforce property rights? You can't. You have to create the record. You need a registry. And that's the purpose for these things. It's for the efficient management of property and property rights. Um, so I don't see a problem with registration. I, I um, just one input on that, and that is that, um, my understanding is that under common law, you don't register anything. Uh, you record as a land asset. So our, what we should have done is recorded the birth rather than register it. Does that yeah, pertain to what you're talking about? It pertains, but I, I don't think that that's the best move to make. Cause if you don't go into the registry, into the commercial registry, then you can't do commercial business. You, I don't know, this is where you have to understand, is there any system in common law for the hypothecation of debt, for insurance, for some of these things that are more in alignment with like admiralty or merchant, law merchant stuff? I don't know if the common well, law facilitates those mechanisms. Well, the, the idea is that you never go into this commercial system. You stay in common law. You're always... You're always a land asset in trade rather than a man has no obligation to engage in commerce. That's for corporations. It's a whole separate body of law. But that is true. You have no obligation. But there is a great amount of benefit to be had by having that capacity. Sure, but that is still, that's right. still a choice. Well, right. And, if you, and that's the whole thing. If you want to live strictly by the common law, but then you can't get involved in investment contracts. You can't get involved in bonding and securities. So you can't go out and get loans. You can't invest in the stock market. You, you know, you're, you're more or less living like the Amish or like Native Americans, you know, where you're living off the land. Sure, and, I, and I, think people, I think people are, well, and, and by what you can do regarding trade. And so if you talk about the law right. of the land, see that people uh, were land assets. They, they, they got everything that they ever had by mining or fishing or or planting and they really were living off the land and I think what's happened at this point is that people are looking at going back to living under just by the law of the land because as you go into this system and live under commercial law and as a as as a commercial person um, maybe maybe your life is corrupted in some way by that. And I think people just seeing the corruption. I, I think yeah. people are just seeing the corruption are looking at that possibility now. There was yeah, there's there's more and more corrupt. Yeah. Yeah, there's room for corruption in any system of law. I mean, any system of law has, has different risks and different benefits, right? But typically, uh, in 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 nature and stuff like that, no risk, no reward, right? Uh, no pain, no gain. So to me, this is well, sure. going into commerce, 
commerce and the law merchant provided a lot of protections for people going into business. There's a reason a lot of people chose to operate that way, and it was because of the principles and the, um, the different philosophies or the different things that were created that would agree, create a greater reward. Right, it, it's a great, and a greater reward to the businessman is typically a greater reward to society in general. Right, they're providing us with tools, with with transportation, with housing that far exceeds anything we've had in the past. And to me, I don't know if all that is possible living strictly by you know in a private trade capacity where you're not involved in any public, any commercial you know activity. But by it, all rights, what you're saying is true. You you is not an obligation. If you want to live that way, you have every right to live that way. Well, it, 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 it certainly feels that way from our perspective now, that there's no possible way to be prosperous if you're only in trade. But I think that's, um, that's become that way as more and more people are engaged in commerce. And I think that's one reason for talking about these uh, two different ways of living, either in commerce or in trade, mm-hmm. is that it's start to separate the two in your mind, then you have a more clear understanding. Yeah, well, and I think a lot of people have, are maybe are fearful or scared of commerce, because again, it's a, it's a lack of understanding. I mean, there's commercial maxims in place that are run almost parallel to the same principles of common law. I mean, dealing with deceit, dealing with fraud, dealing with coercion, these are all principles, you know, in any system of law, they're, they're or things written within that body to protect against people being taken advantage of, you know, injustice, inequity. So I think there's solution and remedy in any, any body of law. It's just there's, there's different ways to navigate it, like you're saying, and there, it takes a lo- little bit different understanding or knowledge base in order to properly navigate it to where you're mitigating the risk. Because in any way of doing it, you know, there's risks in life in general and everything. So... It just comes to con- it just comes to how you want to operate or what you're comfortable with, I guess. But that's where our level of knowledge is going to be the only determining factor in that. Hello. Oh, sorry, I dropped off. Oh, okay. There, yeah. I thought I was on the line by myself. Yeah, yeah. Sorry about that. Okay, well, anyway, that rather than get into all of yep, those... Yeah, we can keep going through the document, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I don't know where we are exactly. I think page... page yeah, eight. we're just kind of going through that diagram with the U.S. citizen nationality. Um, so this is where he's using Black's Law Dictionary, too, where he's saying nationality. Uh, this term is often used synonymously with citizenship. So you can see the interchange of words between, you know, different contexts where, again, this is what leads to a lot of confusion. Um, and then Black's Law Dictionary. Now, I didn't even see this. So nationality here. So nationality determines the political status of the individual, especially with the reference to allegiance, while domicile determines the civil status. Nationality arises either by birth or naturalization. Now you can start to see how there's these two different bodies of law, one pertaining to nationality and one pertaining to a domicile in, in reference to the civil status. So that's yeah. where the 14th Amendment has to be kind of interpreted in that sense. When they're talking about U.S. citizen, they're talking about nationality or they're talking about domicile. You know, they're talking about political status or civil status. And that's when I read that, it says when they're subject to their political jurisdiction. And that's where you get this corporate citizenship and it's not 
14th Amendment is something completely different than what is taken was what is used to take advantage of us by changing our civil status. They're not changing our nationality. They're changing our civil status, yep. which is by domicile. Right. So yeah, um, if you page eight is talking about classification of foreign nationals under federal law. Hmm. So this is where it kind of showing the difference between a foreign nation with its own national government and what one of its citizens from that foreign nation would be in context to our government in the way that we're set up. So with the Constitution, United, the Congress and the federal government has jurisdiction over foreign nationals. They're in charge of the naturalization process. Um, the states cannot naturalize people. That's one of the services or, you know, delegated authorities given through the Constitution to the United States. Yeah, you just breaking down. Are you are you still on? Yeah, I'm still here. I was just muted. Okay. Um, yeah, no, I'm just looking at this diagram and it's up on the screen and uh, looking at that person F under 8 U.S.C. 1101A3. Yep. That's where I don't, since he's using Title Eight again, which has to do with nationality, um, which is a little different because nationality is under public international law, where when we're dealing with civil status and domicile, that's under private international law. So it's it's domicile that determines your alien status, but this is still dealing with political and so, yeah, any, any person born in a foreign nation of a foreign government completely separate from the United States of America and the nation states, they are as well considered non-resident aliens because their loyalties, their allegiance lies to a foreign government. And more times than not, they maintain a foreign domicile, right? They're, they're here residing temporarily. And that's where you get the, you know, where are you residing within the United States? Are you a resident versus a citizen? So they're both considered both a, a foreign national, like a German national, is also a non-resident alien individual. Correct. Yep. And so is a citizen of a one of the fifty union states. Correct. Under and that's what I'm saying. That's where's the difference. You're only an alien in relation to private international law, because that's where everything's separate. Everyone has their own, you know, all states are countries, foreign countries. Under public okay. international law, you would not be an alien because you're a U.S. citizen, right? You're a member to the, to the United States of America. You know, we have a passport. My passport is proof that I'm a member of the union. So that's okay, where you have so to know context-wise are we talking public international law or private international law? Because that changes the terminology of how I relate to the United States. Okay. All right. Um, so it's if it's public international law, you relate to the United States as a national. Correct. Yeah, and that's where you, and that's where you look up under Title Eight, and it says, you know, just national, right? Someone that owes permanent allegiance to a state, that's a national. Right. Uh, that's right there. That's the, it, that's at the bottom of the page, number A there, or number yeah, A. Yeah, 
8 U.S.C. 1101 A21. Right. So that's where we're not under Title VIII. We're not aliens. We're nationals. Okay. Whereas when you go to Title Twenty Six, you're not only talking about taxes in business, contract law, it's a different capacity. That's private international law, and private international law doesn't talk about political status and nationality. They're talking when you see citizen, they're talking about domicile. Okay. So what title should we so, be talking in? Uh, as far as well, as far as domicile, we should be talking about Title Twenty Six. Yeah, in reference to that, I don't know if there's any other parts in the code that might help clarify this as well. I mean, that's something else can be looked into as far as what what titles are in reference to public international law and what titles are in reference to private international law. Do you happen to know what the what the title that governs Social Security? Oh, uh, I think it's 42, but I'm not positive. So that would be the obvious one if SS5 is where we. If we can go look in and see what they say about it, yeah, um, that'd be somewhere to check out. Um, some of my research in the SS5, first, there's people reporting back that it's actually a treasury document. It comes from the Department of Treasury. Um, and that's because that is the document that the IRS relies on of whether they're going to assess taxes or not. So putting it in Social Security is part of how they're doing their concealment, right? They're, they're, sleight of hand uh, trickery where Social Security, everyone thinks old age benefits and no one computes that to like a lot of people have found, well, hey, these numbers are, are tied to, you know, accounts at the, Federal, at the Federal Reserve branch. What's going on with that? You know, so there's, there's much more going on to that SS5 than just old age retirement. Um, and that is a separate issue. Uh, from my understanding, the SS5 is to establish your account number that is not a benefit privilege because you file, you file another application later in life if you want to receive benefits, if you want to receive, you know, your Social Security benefits. That's a separate application. So I consider that a separate issue. So, yeah, we keep working through, I mean, this, that's where this, there's just little things like he says he says here that civil status of a foreign national is predicated on the political status relative to the United States. Well, we just went over the court case earlier that civil status is based on the domicile. And so see, that's where to me he's still whoever put this document together. Um, it's very helpful, but I don't know if he fully understood the implications of private and public and, and the two separations there. Because to me, he's kind of jumping back and forth here. Yeah, yeah, and well, and it's it's interesting because what you said earlier, you don't even think the judges know. So how we're looking yeah. at case law, uh, the the cases are are wrong. Yeah, well, you most know? of the cases are, they don't understand why why they're able to do what they do is essentially what it comes down to. Um, and then a lot of times, yeah, I mean that's one of the issues we have to deal with is just the level of ignorance, right? Like what schooling, what what education do these people actually receive? Most of them are just trained in procedure, right? They don't understand the, the actual foundations of this law system, where it comes from and why it has any authority or not. They're just trained to go through the procedure, go through the steps and, you know, it's indoctrination. It's not really an right. education. Yeah. yeah, so we look at these opinions and maybe their opinions are just wrong. Well, I mean, it's, you know, we, we've got to look at 
we've got to look at whatever we can find and and yeah, look at definitions and make our own case. Uh, my mother yeah. taught me this a long time ago. She said, you look at the tax code, and if you find something in the tax code that Oh, she cut out. Yep. That's not good. Nope. I don't know if I saved that um, organizational chart. I was just looking that up for to see where Social Security felt because we know IRS oh, falls no. under the Treasury. Yeah, that's under the organizational chart. Was it? Did it, it was just Department of Treasury though, right? Did you look up the United States Department of Treasury? Is that the chart that you had? Was the United States Department of Treasury? Yeah, United States Department of Treasury. And it showed the um, IRS is under the U.S. Department of Treasury. Because when you look at um, IRS, mm -hmm. you see here it said, let me look it up here real quick. Yeah, Department, IRS, it goes Department of the Treasury, Internal Revenue Service. Either under the Treasury the U.S. Department of Treasury. I wonder how I that ties into the IMF. Well, the U.S. Treasury, United States Department of Treasury is under the IMF now, I believe. Well, I don't know how long we're supposed to wait. See, going going through the diagram can be hear some. You know what? Oh, I thought maybe I heard her talking. Or oh something. no, I didn't. No, I didn't hear anything. Yeah, I didn't even haven't read through this in a while, and I'm reading this, and it says civil status. You know, it was based on the political status. I'm going, wait a second. You know, that yeah, contradicts what was just, no. Yeah. Yeah, that's what I mean. I mean, it, it's close. There's still just a few things that are a little bit off. Uh, Patrick, I'm back. Oh, sorry about that. It just my oh, I just it just keeps dropping my call. So I'm just gonna set the phone down and do the best I can. Is this the cell service? I think you guys are having problems with all the uh, damage from the earthquake and stuff, or no? Is this something else? Eh, I don't know what it is. It's just um, this is I think the fourth time or fifth time it's dropped since we've been on. Wow. And 
I have a good signal and a, the phone's fully charged. And uh, so if you don't hear me, it's just because it's dropped and I'm trying to get back in. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> no problem. Yeah, just keep 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 rolling. And uh, we're we're getting close to the. I think we're, I don't know where you were at, but we're getting close to page yeah, 10. Yep, we were just getting done with page 8, mostly there, when they were talking about the uh, foreign foreign nations and their status okay, in relation great. to the United States. But that's, yeah, that's where I just see a little bit of discrepancy still in this document um, when he's referring to the civil status being based on political status. When, um, it should be the domicile, but it's kind of the same idea of just trying to understand these, these different body politics and then how to citizenry the people of those body politics, how they interact um, with these governments, with these organizations. So mm -hmm. if we move to, yeah, page nine, so you're, now you're getting into, yeah, American nationals under federal law. And kind of, I guess, the chain of command here, how, how it all flows. They're just re-showing again, you know, where the jurisdiction, where the, the exclusive jurisdiction of Congress lies, you know, Puerto Rico, Guam, District of Columbia. Um, we get the new term. I know some people like to claim what we should be non-citizen nationals. Um, I don't agree with that. I think it's very clear non-citizen nationals are, yeah, just American Samoa and Swan Island. Those are the only people that claim that status. Um, because according to Title VIII, which talks about nationality and aliens, we, we are nationals. We are American nationals. That's our political affiliation in relation to the federal government. Yeah, non-citizen national, is, it's pretty clear. It's also, I noticed it's at the very bottom of the passport application. Um, and it sounds like it's right according to what some studies lead you to, but I, it, it's definitely not the right status that uh, yeah, you're looking Yeah, I don't think, right, I, I don't think it is. I mean, like you said, there is, so I was on it for a while because I was under that same assumption. And really what helped kind of separated for me was just starting to incorporate, again, the civil status and the domicile, because I, I don't see them converting our nationality. My passport still says, you know, I was born in Michigan. My birth certificate said I was born in Michigan. So there's nothing in there to me that's really incriminating, you know, that would change my nationality, as some people claim. Mm -hmm. But uh, I, I definitely can see evidence for them changing my civil status. <laughs> so that's where I guess I'm just a little bit more, that's where my focus is. But I think it's important, too, in F here, they talk about politically domestic to the United States, but legally alien to the United States as far as, you know, federal territory. And that's kind of important, politically domestic, not legally. These are just two different, politically, which to me is public law, again, public international law, whereas legally, legal would be private international law. So that's the relation of those different terms that we would use to describe our relationship to the United States. Okay. Mm -hmm. So out on this diagram, A through F, um, which one is your status? Yeah, that's who we'd be A. We are the national. We're under, under Title VIII, we would be considered just a, a national. Um, they don't give any other term to define what we are politically, you know. Again, that's political status, which I think is proper. I don't see any issues there. I'm a national because I was born in the nation state of Michigan, which is a member to the union. So Okay, so 
this diagram A through F are it's all talking about under Title VIII, um, the correct. It's all Title VIII. Yep. So okay. to me, Title VIII, okay. Title VIII is all in reference to that that public law because you're dealing with political entities, not contractual, right? Not legal. This is not not right. in a legal lease, not in a legal world. So politically wise, yeah, this is where again the birth of it shows your nationality as a as a national one of the states of the union. Okay, and does this um, does this help you claim uh, jurisdiction under common law? Do you think? I, I, I think I don't, it does. I don't think so. And the only reason I can point to that is there's another document I believe I sent you that maybe we can go over another time and we'll, we'll bring it in. But just shortly, um, it's from the American Bar Association and it has to do with the conflict of laws. Uh, which is private international law, which is contract law. And as we mentioned, even in the hierarchy of laws, contract law supersedes constitution. So this is where we have to be really aware of what contracts, what you know, agreements we're getting involved with because they have you know, really serious implications. Right. Um, so I don't see, because of nationality under conflict of laws, when you're dealing the same thing as we said with the court case, it's civil status is the one that determines your 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 property rights, your your personal rights, your majority minority, your intestacy, your testacy, all those rights are determined by your civil status, not your political status. So I don't see the nationality in this really playing any any role. I don't see it of being of any real great importance other than it entitles you to claim certain things because you were born as a native. You know, entitles you to the full capacity to contract. Um, but then whatever contracts you get involved with are going to take precedent over your nationality. Does that make sense? Right. Yep. Yep. It does. Um, you can't, it's essentially because I guess logically speaking, you can't use the government in their political capacity to strong arm, you know, people that you're in contract with. If you breach the agreement, if you breach the contract, the government's not going to come in and bail you out, right? You're liable for your contracts. All sovereigns are. The king's liable for his contracts. If he, if he takes on a debt and he doesn't pay it back, then there's consequences for that. <laughs> so I don't see sure, it as being sure. anything really different. Yeah, I don't see it as being anything different no, in, that, in that way. That makes perfect sense. But when we're talking about criminal law, does your nationality have an impact on what uh, type of court case you can have? If you require a court of record trial by jury, for example, does your nationality play into into that. Mm -hmm. It seems to me it, it does because now you're operating as a national and a sovereign of one of the states and you get you set your court as a court of record that proceeds in accordance with common law in a criminal matter. And there is no contract or there could of course there could be a contract at play there. Yeah, we don't really know because they keep so much of it hidden. But I, and that's where, to me, I don't think the SS5 is technically a contract. It's more of, again, just a registration of a domicile for your legal person, much like the birth certificate is not a contract, right? It's just an application or it's a registration. I believe the SS5 is essentially your birth certificate for your legal person. That's my interpretation of it and how it's working. And so that's why once you enter that, that SS5 as a U.S. citizen, you've just lost your, your state citizen standing as far as it relates to private law. Your contract, you just contracted out of the body politic of the state. 
in favor of contracting into the body politic of the United States. So you're saying and the whole correction, the whole correction that you need to be making. Well, uh, the the the, the first important most important, the foundational, is the is your legal is your legal status, your, which your domicile. Yeah, which correct. Well. So what what would be your assessment as to how to correct your domicile? What 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 do you think right now as far as your study has brought you? What what a person well, that's would what, do? I mean, I've tr I've tried twice to correct it um, because according to the the very directions on the S five says that if there is a change in citizenship, remember in private law citizenship is synonymous with domicile. So they're saying if there is a change in domicile, you need to resubmit an SS five to update your record. Uh -huh. Now the problem now the problem comes in is because all these local branches for the Social Security they're indoctrinated and told that if people come in with a passport or a U.S. birth certificate that they are a U.S. citizen. I've mm -hmm. tried to check and as, as well as my I tell people in my family to check off legal alien legal alien allowed to work on the SS5 at which point the Social Security Administration will not process the form. I believe that to be. A, the possible angle or the, the correct path to follow as far as to, to claim fraud, to claim a violation of constitutional rights. It's one thing to create an artifact, uh, uh, a bogus record, right? But when we found out, when I went down there and wanted to change my record and they're not allowing the remedy, right? Now, now we've got a serious, now this is criminal intent. This is conspiracy against right. This is compulsory citizenship. Because they're told they can only process, they're not allowed to process it. Um, I actually had a conversation with a lady at the Social Security um, who was a paralegal before she worked there. And I was bouncing some of these things off her about the law of domicile on the SS5 being the registration at domicile in relation to the United States being a foreign government in relation to the state government. And she, whether she was just trying to appease me or not, she was in agreement. She told me what I was saying was true. Mm -hmm. But since 9-11, Homeland Security has taken over Social Security. They changed their programs, and she's saying that she doesn't have access. She can, it's only like yes, no, like check boxes on the program that they're operating. So they're literally, you know, hands are tied more or less. And this is what I was, this is the story or the explanation I was given, whether it's accurate or not, that they, they cannot, she was unable to process it with me doing that because when she clicks it, it opens up for other information. And if you don't have it or you don't, you know, like your immigration documents or a green card or some of these other things, then it won't let you go to the next step. So by the very programming itself, now that they're operating in the lack of understanding of the status of a state citizen in relation to a US citizen, they are blocking our remedy. They're blocking our ability to actually correct the record. Which I believe well, to be, you know, more of the proper angle to go against them for for violation of constitutional rights and international law. Have you tried sending a letter to the the tippy top person, the the man who at times operates as the whatever the top person in that the commissioner of the Social Security, the the head of sure. the Social Security, is, yeah, is this the commissioner of Social Security? Um, if you read through. I haven't tried that, and mostly because when you even they tell you to process your form, you have to send it to your local branch. They said if you send it to their office, to their main office, or their headquarters, or anything like that, they're they are not going to process it. It's going to get sent right back to you. Well, they so, may so choose. They could be tried to, to see what happens, but that's yeah, that's the, what the, their I, procedure says. Yeah, and 
I hear what you're saying, but what I'm what I'm trying to to explain is that it's not your problem what they do; it's your problem what you do. You know, it's your it's your decision what you do. So if you write this letter, explain the situation that you've tried to get it processed through, and they refuse, and you explain your case. You know, you've written the letter, you've sent it registered mail, that's all you need. Their policies, their policies may or may not matter, but if you're in a situation where you need evidence that shows that you've done your due diligence, then you'll have it. Right. Yes, I agree uh, with that. Because ultimately, I believe this is going to boil, it's going to have to go through a court. Um, when I called in, because I, I called the number of Social Security after they sent it back, my application, and I talked to uh-huh. her to try to tell her, and of course she was like, well, this is all new to me. I have, you know, I don't know anything about a state citizen, you know, being a legal alien and stuff. She's like, well, the best course was I asked her, was like, well, what am I supposed to do? It's like, there's no point in scheduling a personal interview. You guys are going to tell me the same thing. She's like, no, I believe for you to get this process, you're going to have to go through court. You're going to have to get us, you know, go and file a civil claim or whatever in, in the court and have a judicial hearing on it. And that way we can process it. She didn't believe there'd be any other way to do it. The other lady told me to contact Homeland Security, which is another route that I haven't really gone down yet because these agencies, of course, are hard to contact, they're hard to interact with, and it takes forever to get anything done, which have you, is by have design. You seen, have you seen the form that it takes to go into your federal district court and write a complaint? No. That would yeah, be very it's, helpful. It's, it's really, really simple. It's uh, You put your name, address, and telephone number at the top, and they say, don't talk anything, don't tell us about anything legal that's happened, just tell us what happened to you. And you put your claim in very, very simple, simply by writing a narrative of what, of what your problem is. So that's, it's not difficult to file a claim in federal court. Yeah, well, that's something I'd definitely be interested. I mean, if you have access to it and you could send it, I would definitely, I have filed a claim with my attorney, with the attorney general for the state, and that's been about three weeks now. And then every time I call to check, they're saying, well, there's still no case set up yet because it said it could take three to four weeks for them to process the, the complaint or whatever to even open up like a case filing. Mm-hmm. So hopefully maybe within the next week or two, I doubt it. I don't know what they're going to do with it because every time I talk to them, they're kind of miffed. They're like, well, what are we supposed to do? They don't, you know, because, again, this is all new to so many people. No one's been taught any of this. So, but I believe, yeah, going through the court, and if if you have a form and document, I mean, I'm definitely open to trying it and, and seeing what kind of, you know, uh, effect that it has. Yeah, it's just a civil rights, I mean, it's a civil rights claim. So I guess you'd be making that claim as a, as a U.S. person, you know, because that's, that's what these courts are set up for. for yeah, and see, that's right. Then you have the jurisdictional issues because if uh, when I read there's an executive order from 1999 of the principles of federalism, and that's where it says that the protection of the state citizens and the state property is the primary objective of the state government. So this is where you get kind of because Social Security is a federal agency. So I don't know if the claim should be going to the federal government because it's a federal agency, or if it's a claim that should be brought in front of a state court in the state government because it is their primary objective to protect me as one of their citizens and my property rights. Yeah, but because of the level of ignorance, I think you're going to have to go through both. And as far as having that form, I 
I went to federal, just down to the federal court building one day, and I asked. We just were talking um, to the uh-huh. clerk there. She gave us this form that they use in Alaska, and I was just shocked at how simple it is. So I don't have it, but you know, it's it's it was. So you're saying so, Yeah, it might be something that I'll just take a trip down to my the federal district court then and see and talk to them, see what they say. Yeah, you've got a civil rights. You, you know, you can use that form and just put, you know, for ease of filing purposes, you don't think you're a federal person. You don't have to, you know, you just eventually have to make that clear that you didn't think you, you were ever a federal person. Right. And, well, and if there's any error or if there's something procedure that needs to be different, then they're going to instruct me. They're going to kick it out or they're going to say why. So then either way, you're getting feedback, right? You're learning um, procedurally wise what, what needs to be done even if it's by doing the wrong thing first. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, and I hate, yeah, I hate to give jurisdiction where it's not warranted, but I it seems like, you know, that's that's a silly that that would be a silly reason not to, you know, not to try to follow oh. through with it. Yep. But yeah, it's it's uh it's crazy the situation we're in because um the objective just seems to be to keep you confused, keep all of us confused. So you get off the yeah. merry-go-round only to get right back on it, and they, and they just keep you spinning. Yeah, there's there's a lot of stuff, and that's I mean, and that's what it's been for me for you know as as you can relate to of how it, most of the time you start trying to sort through this, you just you end up running in circles, right? And your head mm-hmm. just starts to spin. And I don't know how many days, you know, yeah, that's been exactly it, where you just, your hands go up and be like, what in the heck are we going to do about this? <laughs> so I know, yeah, it's, it's difficult, but I think, yeah, we're getting close. I mean, we're going, we're going to figure it out. It's only a matter of time. So hopefully it's sooner rather than later. Yep. And uh, lots of people are becoming aware of it. So, yeah. So let's see, do you want to, do you want to hit, page 10 or should we just wrap it up here for tonight yeah no we can we can kind of touch on page 10 if you want um because it's getting into a little bit more of the tax status stuff which is definitely very important um yeah before you before you move on though i would like to mention that uh i personally know uh eight people in five different states that have tried to correct their ss5 and everybody gets the same answer they won't let them change it and I think Patrick brought it up in the last call that when he talked to Winston Shrout, Winston even told him, oh, no, they won't let you change that. So to me, when I see that, that's a red flag. Something's going on here. They're not going to allow you to correct your status. Yeah. And well, as far as the letter, I am in the process of drafting an affidavit that I was going to send to the commissioner of Social Security. And I can give you an update on that when I get a response from the commissioner. Okay. And what's the letter in regards to exactly? Just not being able to correct it? Or? Yeah, not being able to correct it. I, w- I went down four different times and went to different <laughs> branches in my area. And the only thing they yeah. let me correct is the name because even, even in their um, application, your name isn't the way they ask for it. If you look in their definitions, you're supposed to use your given name and your surname, no middle name. They disregard the middle name. But on their application, okay. yeah. they're asking for a middle name. 
Yeah, and on, on, on that, I believe that that is something else that kind of piqued my curiosity because, from my understanding, a given name and a surname is is under the common law. That's how they do a legal name in common law. And that's why I think all this is being done in under the common law, right? This, they, not, they didn't leave it behind. It's in alignment with the common law. We've just forgotten so much of it. And it's very convenient that, yeah, they tell you when you fill out the form, it's self-explanatory, and they just start defining on, on like, box three. They don't tell you anything about your name. But when you go and look up the definition, Social Security's definition of a legal name, again, it's different than from how people fill it out. And this is why most people, when they get mailings and stuff from, from Social Security or where they find their taxes, they're using a middle initial or they're using no middle name at all. It's because it's being omitted off the record. Because then you put that middle name in title. the box. Yeah, I believe it's another mechanism they're using to cloud to create confusion. Okay, and there is uh, one thing that Anna Von Reitz talks about this um, when she goes through these different name forms and talks about the fact that these different corporations have have gone bankrupt recently in 2015 and 2017. And as you get a different corporation operating, then the name style changes slightly. And mm -hmm. it could just be the the corporations are are you know going out of business and coming back into business under a new name. But then the name style associated with that that corporation changes form, and that the administration, Social Security administration, and the other agencies aren't really keeping up with the changes in name style. So that could be part of it too. Yeah, yeah. And I know there were oh. changes they made too recently to to how they were printing the name because for a while I remember my first Social Security card it, it came with my middle initial on there, and I believe it was in. 2001 or two was it not too long ago that they changed again their policy and where they had it to type out the full name they were no longer allowed to use initials I believe when they type out your your name on the card and right, that might be again something to do with these what's going on with the corporate with the you know backside of it what we don't see right and and the other thing about a name with a, just a middle initial is that it's they can't hold it up they can't Stand on anything because it's non-specific. It could be, you know, your right. middle initial be any a number of things. So, you know, that's one reason they've moved away from using that name style. Yeah. Yep. And for and for good reason. Yeah. I mean, it should be a full legal name. I mean, that is in alignment with the principles of common law, right? You don't use fictitious names on your contracts. Right. You have to use your full legal name, and that would be your name as it's written out on your birth document. Right. So yeah. just something else to think about, you know, how much of an effect it has, I'm not really sure, but it's interesting and there doesn't seem to be any reason for it, you know, on its face. So there must be some sort of agenda of wh why they're trying to cloud titles or why they're trying to manipulate people's names. And the other thing, question I have about the Social Security Administration, is it a problem with what you're trying to change your domicile to, that that's not the correct terminology to be using? The one the one that you were trying to change it to. Oh, legal. Right. And so, yeah, and, and that's debatable. But when, again, when we start going through the tax code, it becomes very clear that, I mean, tax-wise, statutorily-wise, we, we are aliens to the federal government. We are aliens to the United States and D.C. So it just makes common sense because that's, you know, you have a 1040 NR or you have your 1040. The 1040 can be filed by U.S. persons or by resident aliens, whereas the 1040 is for non-resident aliens. 
Well, the term alien is, is coming up again and again, so it makes sense that if your civil status is that of a legal alien, you may still have to file a 1040 because you might be a resident alien versus being, you know, where you're living geographically outside of the United States, which would make you the non-resident alien. So see, there's different terminologies for even being an alien, and that's going to change your tax liability. Yeah, but wouldn't a, a legal alien would be someone that's naturalized? No, that would be a that lawful be a alien. Or that would be someone or that lawful. was granted print. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I meant. Law, that's a law. Yeah. Yep. Yep. A lawful alien would be, again, that's where you go back to public law, law, public law, not, not private law. Right. Yeah, someone coming, from, yeah. someone coming okay. from Germany. Yeah, they, they would be a lawful alien. And, and possibly a legal alien, right? That's their legal status or their legal, you know, terminology, their title would be dependent on where their domicile was then. They're a lawful alien politically, but now do they set up a business and have a domicile here where they're, they're not? Maybe their business is, again, their civil status is different than their uh, political status. Yeah, and so one, thing to to note too, one thing to note, too, on the uh, SS5 application, it says all information is voluntary. Well, if it's voluntary yep. and you're submitting it, then how can they tell you, no, you have to choose this? You yep. have to choose and that, that's this. That's the other side. And that's, yeah. yeah, and I can tell because part of the paperwork they came back from Social Security, when I checked Legal Alien, is they sent paperwork talking about non-U.S. citizen uh, replacement Social Security card and all the terminology for a non uh, a non-U.S. citizen. Well, I sent in a passport. Uh, how that? How are they interpreting that I'm claiming to be a non-U.S. citizen? If I wasn't a U.S. citizen, how would I get a passport? Yeah. It, it doesn't even make sense. Yeah, I think you just have to be, if you write a letter, you just have to very, very clearly talk about uh, the definition you're using as United States citizen. You're, you're claiming... Yeah. Well, I, I think it's kind of like you yeah. said, you kind of need to have the paper trail and create the record so that when you move forward and go through court, it just builds, you have a, you have a, you know, a better case now. You have more evidence to support um, trying to get the, the record updated, trying to get them to acknowledge what needs to be acknowledged. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan of writing letters. I'm a big fan of writing them in in my own hand of uh, handmade letters they're they're yep. written in longhand and they write to the man who at times acts in whichever public office they're acting in so that you're you're pulling him out from behind the corporate you know protection the corporate veil right we're making him personally liable yeah yep yep you're, yep. yeah you're so you're you're using liable. You're using his legal name and then putting down doing business as whatever position they have, correct? Well, okay, so it's 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 always the same. Every single letter starts the same if I'm dealing with an actor. Yeah. Dear, dear John, um, I, a man, I, a woman, whichever applies, write to you the man who at times acts as the chief of police for Fairbanks City, for example. Okay. So he's, I'm not writing to John Adams, the chief of police. I'm writing to John, the man who at times acts as, because right. they're protected as long as they're under the corporate, they're, they're acting 
but as long as uh, when they're not when they're not just an actor acting under the corporate veil now they're a man and he's the one who's responsible to God in the end so um, he's not protected under this you know yeah uh, yeah so so that's that's important and also um, so the handwritten letters and also when you when you record something onto the land record in your area you're writing declarations so it's everything that you know firsthand is what you're putting down and what this does is helps you not get involved in all this terminology you're just saying things um, you're speaking in common parlance you're making declarations mm -hmm. you get to control what the words mean you can define the words and control what they mean you don't have to go into this uh, system and use right. their terminology so it's so you really are you really are being sovereign you really are acting as the one who's in control of things and you're making declarations it's not dangerous because it's what you know and you're putting it down you have two witnesses you know people you trust as witnesses right. yep sign that you don't need a notary public because these are corporate notary publics unless you have one that agrees to enforce private law um, or I'm, I'm sorry public organic public law which you can do you can do by you know giving them a copy of Mac and Prince versus United States that says corporate officers can act to enforce public organic law so you know if you find a notary public that will enforce public organic law yeah uh, use the notary public otherwise on but for declarations you it's 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 more proper to have two witnesses than to have a notary public anyway so you have these declarations that you write witnessed and you you record them on your land record those are land assets they pertain to everything re pertaining to you and so now right. we're not only claiming common law we're acting as if we are you know behaving as as man rather than as a you know Fiction in a corporate capacity so, right yeah yeah yeah, more more so, things to try, more more work to do. <laughs> yeah, and that you know that that yeah that's whatever you you decide, and whoever you are, that's going to be what's upheld. They can have, they can make terms, you know, make up terms day in day out, three sixty five, and 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 people are paying them to sit in these offices and come up with all kinds of horrible legal chicanery. But if you want to really pull out from underneath it, just get away from it and stop, you know. It's, it's really important to do what we've done and understand how they're operating. But then, to me, it makes sense to just be who you are. Well, yeah. I mean, yeah, my point of view with it is just by getting the record correct, now we, they're on the hook to provide those services. They're under contract to provide because they took an oath to do it. Without the record, they're kind of off the hook. Right, they have no one that can really hold them accountable. But as soon as we come back on the books with our true status, these people don't have the same leeway that they've been given for the last, you know, hundred years. Now we right. can go enforce the public law against them because we have all the standing within the system to do it, and they have to recognize it because it's the very system itself that's telling them who we are. If they don't do their jobs, they're liable. 
you know, again, it makes, it turns the whole system from being, you know, on its own direction, on its own agenda, putting them back into their place of filling that public office and doing their duties and, you know, providing right. the services that they, they said that they, they get paid to do. They collect public money, oh. you know, they collect a check every week. Right, and, and one thing that you can do very, very simply is anytime you deal with a public official, uh, somebody who's a public servant, is accept their oath of office. Before yeah, you start any yeah, I got the five, you know, Attorney General, the Secretary of State, the Commissioner of Insurance, uh, the top five for the state, I've got all their, their oaths of offices, certified copies from the Great Seal, from the department that, that holds their oath. Because, yeah, I mean, and that's what it's getting back to. It's holding them accountable to their job, to their duties. Um, well, their duties, their duties at law. Um, yep. So, so now what I understand is that when um, a public servant takes an oath of office, that's an offer that needs to be accepted by each one of us. So when you get these certified copies of their oath, do you also accept the oath and and say, okay, I accept the, your offer? I to me again, this comes back to the status. The reason people are trying to accept them is because they've changed their individual status, which means that that government official is no longer under contract to them. Right, the state has under no obligation to provide services to a U.S. citizen. That's the federal government's job. That's the United States's job, not the state. Right. So you see how the implication right. of the status would automatically change the relationship we have to our to the governments we're living under. Right. So right. They, yep. Yeah. So now they don't have you don't have to do all this extra work. It's already been taken care of. What does the record say? Yep. I'm a state citizen. Yep. You have to provide these services to me. No, you cannot violate any of my rights protected by the Constitution. I have the right to bear arms. I have the right to travel. I have the right to own property. Right. I mean, all these things become a matter of fact. It's very simple. You don't have to, you're mm -hmm. not constantly at, 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 in a fight. You're not in a, you know, adversary relationship with the state government anymore. Now they're there to provide the services that they are on obligation to provide to okay, you so and their citizens. So as a, as a national, as a, as a Michigan, okay, I want to say Michigan, or Michiganian, as a Michiganian, Michiganian. yep. Uh, you, you, it's not necessary for you to accept their oath of office? Is that what you're saying? I don't, I don't, right, correct. That's what that would be my belief from my research. Okay. That's what it would say. Um, because again, okay. most, of, most of these status changes, you'll see that most of the codes written as far as property tax and vehicle code and all this other traffic code, it all applies to state residents, right? And we know that residents are not citizens. And of course, if you're a U.S. citizen, you can't be a state citizen, at least not civilly. You might be national, like politically, right? As we're finding out, politically, you're still a citizen. But legally, mm -hmm. your civil status is not that of a state citizen, it's that of a U.S. citizen. So now, the state is not liable for you, and they're under an obligation to provide anything to you other than, other than due process, right? That's the 14th Amendment. Okay, now here's something, though. If, if they're seeing you, if right now your status is not corrected under SS5, and they cognize you as a uh, citizen of D.C., does it make sense to you to to cover both sides to basically cover you know accept the oath of office and also uh, because they're seeing you that way they're seeing you as a yeah. Right. yeah 
Yeah, you would because that's a workaround then because you, you don't have your status corrected. So you are you are correct. So if you accept their 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 offer, now they're under contract. But if you didn't accept it, then they're not in the, in that context. But if your right. status is corrected, then you didn't have you don't have to do that because it's already been taken care of. Everything it covers everything. So you've got to go to got to go to the commissioner. You've got to accept the oath of office of the commissioner of the Social Security Administration. Get, and then under under that contract, correct your status, and then you can start operating on the corrected. Yeah. Yeah. That may be one possible solution. Yes. I mean, like I said, there might there's I'm sure more than one angle to take at this, and that's what it is. You're just find, trying to find and root out those different paths, right? Which one's going to lead to the, the the easiest success, and you know what? How many times are we going to have to fail in order to succeed? And that's kind of where we're at. Exactly right. Yep. So. Yep. Well. Yeah. Okay. Well, good. I I think I think that's we've we've covered a lot today. I think that's excellent. What do yeah. you guys? What are your yeah. final thoughts on this tonight? Yeah, I think it, I think it went well. Uh, I think we got some good information. It looks like we have we have a few people listening, which is interesting. I I don't know where they came from. <laughs> uh, that's that's fine. <laughs> Um, yeah. uh, we were thinking we'd be doing private calls and then put it up there, but that's fine. Um, but I think what we what we ought to do is is figure out where we're going next. You want to get? I think this has been really valuable to do these first nine pages. I think we might want to just con complete this. Yeah. Um, yeah. We can next time go through more of the pages and then possibly have to say I got so the list of the stuff that I sent you is some good court cases, court you know case law that would support a lot of this that could be added in. Um, but yeah, we can just kind of continue along. Okay. All right. And I, um, just let me know if you want to if you want to set up a regular schedule that works for us. But or if you just want to let me know when the next time you want to do it. Um, it doesn't have to be on any sort of a regular schedule, just as you guys have time. Okay. Yeah, I'll just touch base to you. Maybe we'll try to figure out a, a system or, yeah, maybe some sort of schedule. But I'll, okay. we'll talk about it, uh, and I'll let you know what, what we can uh, come up with. Okay. And I will, in the meantime, probably make this into a, a YouTube video so that we can share it on YouTube as well. Cool. Did you do that with the first one? I didn't know you didn't send me a link or anything, so I didn't know if you had gone through the first talk I, that we did or not. I I haven't done it yet because we changed operating systems, but now I have learned the new software, and so I can do that one as well. All right, cool. Yeah, I was just curious. No big deal. Yeah. Yep. So right. yep, we'll do that and send out the links, and uh, otherwise, have a blessed week, and um, we'll talk to you soon. All right. Thank you, Maria. Talk soon. Bye. All right. Bye-bye. Bye. How do I hang up? All right, this one? It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? 
a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.